Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Um, yes, Luke's Gospel, um, one of my favorite books in the whole Bible, along with the other 65. Um, but I'm always grateful to have the opportunity to speak on a theme from the Gospels. I came across this little book quite some years ago by a man called Thomas Akempis called The Imitation of Christ. Thomas Akempis lived in the late 1300s, early 1400s, but don't let the age put you off. Um, I want to read what he says right up front in this little book, The Imitation of Christ. And I do want to say as well, right up front, that polling and I had no collaboration whatsoever before the time, Um, but as I was listening to the children's talk this morning, it struck me that there were significant parallels between what she had to say to the children and to us, and what I want to say to you today from Luke's Gospel. So I brought this book with me. That wasn't engineered before the time. Here's how Thomas Akempis begins his book on the imitation of Christ. He quotes from John chapter 8 and verse 12. He who follows me can never walk in darkness, says the Lord. By these words, Christ urges us to mold our lives and characters on the image of his life if we wish to be truly enlightened and freed from all blindness of heart. Let us therefore see that we endeavor beyond all else to meditate on the life of Jesus Christ. Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ, you can find a million different versions of this online, free of charge. Um, I'm not sure that we really have a good contemporary translation of it, but it's well worth the read. And if it's true what Jesus says, if you don't want to walk in darkness, follow me, because as we were reminded earlier, I am the light of the world, then it seems true, doesn't it, that what Thomas Kemper says here should be a priority for us, to meditate on the life and the teachings of Jesus, which is exactly what you have the opportunity of doing going through Luke's gospel as you are. Now, you won't catch me saying that the other parts of the Bible are less important, but there's hardly anything that's more important for our formation as Christ's people than to meditate on his life and his teachings, and in that way, We won't walk in darkness. Another thing, Pauline, that struck me as you were talking this morning was that it started off all about food, didn't it? Tomato sauce and soy sauce and salt and so forth. And the passage that we're looking at this morning from Luke chapter 14 is set around a meal. And I thought to myself while I was preparing this, this should relate with us Baptists pretty well right from the beginning. Because one of the things that we do really well is eat. 
Um, we share food together, and that's a good thing. There are few better ways of building community than eating food together. So in this meal setting that I'm sure that we can relate to this morning, Luke chapter 14 verses 1 to 24 is our reading for today. But it's, it's divided into three episodes or scenes, if you like, all in the same setting, but three different things. And I meant to look up in the Bible, in the pews in front of you, um, exactly what page this is on, if you're not familiar um, with where you can find Luke chapter 14. Maybe somebody could just shout that out for us if you've got the space, the place. Luke 953. So if you're not familiar with where to find Luke's gospel in the Bible, turn to page 953. And I'm going to read three separate sections, one at a time, and then reflect with you a little bit on each of these three. So the first one, we're told that Jesus was at a Pharisee's house, Luke chapter 14, from verse 1. One Sabbath, underline in your mind that word Sabbath because that's going to be hugely important, the setting. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering, and the New International Version says, from abnormal swelling of his body. Um, some older versions may have used the word dropsy. We'd probably call it edema today. Um, build up of fluid that the heart just was not capable of pumping away. A serious and possibly fatal condition. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then Jesus asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. I asked you earlier to underline that word Sabbath in your mind because it's setting on the Sabbath or the seventh day of the Jewish week was all important. This meal takes place, we're told, in the home of a prominent Pharisee. And we're told also that they were experts of the law, Pharisees and experts of the law who were present at this meal. And I think this was not a sort of, Jesus, we love you so much, we'd love to have you come over for lunch after the service today. Quite the opposite, in fact. You've been listening uh, to a series on Luke for quite a long time. And you know that there's been this brewing confrontation between Jesus on the one hand and the religious and political leaders of Judaism on the other. And a lot of it had to do with the Sabbath day, the seventh day. 
the day on which we're told, according to Genesis, that God ceased from his creating work and rested and commanded, you'll remember, um, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, holy is an interesting and important word in the Bible and in Christian theology. But often we don't have a very good idea of what it means. Holy, um, the holiest thing that you probably own is your toothbrush. Because if somebody else uses your toothbrush by mistake, the first thing you'll do when you find out about it is throw that toothbrush away, I'm sure, and get yourself a brand new one. Or if you use somebody else's toothbrush by mistake, well, you just about want to throw up, don't you? <laughs> That's what holiness means. It means reserved for the exclusive use of somebody. And for us to be holy as God's people is exactly that. To be reserved for the exclusive use of God. Now, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had certain ideas of what keeping the Sabbath holy meant. And in fact, they designed a whole set of rules and regulations about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath day. And you who've been listening to the series in Luke's Gospel for some time now will know that part of this growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day was around exactly this, what you could and could not do on the Sabbath day. In Luke chapter 6, do you remember, Jesus and his disciples were going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And the disciples were hungry. They began picking some heads of wheat and rubbing the husks off and eating the wheat. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, your disciples are doing what it's not lawful to do on the Sabbath because to pick grain was classed as work which you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And you remember, you may remember Jesus teaching them then, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Something that didn't win him any popularity contest with the Pharisees. And in Luke chapter 6, you remember the healing of the withered man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And Luke chapter 13, which I think you will have heard Mark preach on just a week or two ago, maybe two weeks back, the healing of a woman with a crippled back on the Sabbath day. And here we get to Luke chapter 14. And Jesus is invited, probably for underhanded reasons, to this meal with a Pharisee in the home of this prominent Pharisee. And there are a whole lot of other Pharisees there and experts in the law. And there's a man with a bad case of edema there as well. And it was the Sabbath day. Have the Pharisees learned anything at all from their previous 
encounters with Jesus about the Sabbath? Has anything got through to them at all? Well, they are watching Jesus like hawks to see what Jesus is going to do. It really is just another episode, isn't it? In this developing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. I mean, he could hardly be in a more vulnerable position. He's in somebody else's home. The homeowner happens to be a Pharisee, and not just a Pharisee, a prominent one. There are a whole lot of other Pharisees there too, experts in the law. Jesus is walking on eggshells, we would think, except Jesus never actually walks on eggshells. He's always in complete command of the situation. He knows what he's going to do. And it's almost as if he's provoking the conflict. So the Pharisees are watching him to see what he's going to do. What will Jesus do? They've stuck God in a box. They've made up their own mind about how and when and where God can work and how and when and where he can't. This is the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal a man with a potentially fatal disease on the Sabbath day? And so Jesus asked them, Direct question. I mean, Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. Jesus gets right to the point. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And Luke very pointedly tells us they remained silent. I wonder why they remained silent. Well, they didn't want to lose face, did they? Because if they said, no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, well, then they'd just be showing their lack of compassion for what it really is, that their rules and regulations were more important than the need of this man. If they said, okay, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then they'd be going against the whole body of their own tradition and rules. Let me just say, in situations like that, it is a good idea just to zip your lip. <laughs> Don't commit yourself. Um, and that's exactly what they did. And Jesus, in that, do they still call it, or is it politically incorrect to say, a pregnant silence? In that silence, Jesus takes hold of the man and heals the man. For Jesus, human need comes way above rules and regulations. You see, at the bottom of all this is a big conflict on whose interpretation of the Old Testament in particular is authoritative. Is it the interpretation of the Pharisees for whom human need comes a long way further down the list than the rules and the regulations? Or is it Jesus' reading? The God who is compassionate and loving and kind and whose desire since that nuclear explosion of the fall 
way back in Genesis 3, is to put things right and is putting things right in the person of his son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But that's not quite the end of the episode because Jesus presses them further to get them to face up to what they themselves would do in the case of an emergency. What if your child or your ox, some older versions may read your donkey or your ox, just a problem of textual transmission, don't get too confused about that, but you Pharisees, you who get your nose out of joint, if I heal a desperately ill man when it happens to be the Sabbath day, what do you do? You have a child or one of your animals who falls into a well on a Sabbath. You know, don't tell me that you go hunting through your rules and regulations. You go and pull the kid out, for goodness sake. That's exactly how they would behave. How do you religious leaders respond in case of emergency on the Sabbath? Well, you've got to give the Pharisees credit for something. At least they are consistent because they remain silent again. They didn't have a thing to say, just a mouth full of teeth. They didn't have a leg to stand on. Because in all their rules and regulations, compassion, compassion had got lost from the picture completely. Let it be the most important thing you do then to meditate on the life of Christ so that we can mold our own lives into the shape of Jesus, our master, we call ourselves his followers, then let your life be a life of compassion above the rules and regulations that people want to impose on you. But that's not all at this meal. From verse 7 onwards, we read the next little episode at this meal. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, you know, because this is a big shot meal, prominent Pharisees, many other Pharisees, experts in the law, these were no ordinary people. This was kind of the top of society. When he's noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, actually it was quite funny, um, Jackie and I, my wife, um, we are watching The West Wing again, um, episodes of The West Wing just for fun. Um, what makes The West Wing so brilliant, of course, is the writer, um, which is Aaron Sorkin and anything. I mean, Aaron Sorkin also did the, um, the script for, what was it, that movie about Facebook called The Social Network or something? Yeah. Um, that one, anyway. Now, who on earth could produce a film about Mark Zuckerberg and make it interesting? I don't know, except that Aaron Sorkin is such a brilliant scriptwriter uh, that the script carries the day. 
The episode of the West Wing that we were watching last night was poor old CJ, who's the White House press secretary, trying to arrange the places at a huge table for some banquet or other. And the backwards and forwards about who should sit where and, ah, oh, you need to. It's about, what, season two, episode six or seven or eight or something. It's hilarious, actually. Um, and exactly the same thing was going on at this feast. You know, pick, people wanting to pick the most important places to sit at the table because it's who you're seen with and your status. That's all important. And when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. You know, don't sit where the bride's mother is supposed to sit. You know, somebody's going to shoo you away from there when she arrives. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Can I read that verse to you again? Because if Thomas Akempis is right... And the most important thing for us to do as Christ followers is to model our lives on the life and the teaching of Christ. Then hear these words of the one we call Lord, the one we claim to follow, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves would be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends. And there they all were, all the Pharisees, experts in the law, this prominent Pharisee's friends. Your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors, if you do, they may, may invite you back. And so you'll be repaid. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. These principles were even more important in Jesus' day than they are in ours. Because in Jesus' day, honor and shame was a hugely important dimension of social relationships. You did everything you could to be seen to have a place of honor. To be shamed was about the worst thing that could happen to you, worse than death sometimes. And in an honor and shame society, people were falling over themselves backwards to be seen as having honor and to avoid shame by whatever means possible. People doing what people do. Scrambling for the best places.
trying to get noticed, looking after number one. Does any of this sound vaguely familiar? Desperately trying to preserve their status. Some of you may be familiar with some of the sad, sad stories that have emerged over the last couple of years about what I want to call celebrity Christian leaders who, when the truth has come out, have been shown to be abusive, have fallen flat on their face because of their misbehavior, their misconduct, their bullying, their abuse of women, and the list goes on. I don't need to name any names here today because I'm sure you're familiar with some of them. I can think of hardly anything that's done more damage to Christianity in the first few decades of the 21st century than celebrity Christianity. Because we put these people on a pedestal and inevitably they're going to fall. I read about pastors spending exorbitant amounts of money on the green room that they go to before the service starts, where they've got a well-stocked bar and air conditioning and people pandering to their every need, and then they go out on the stage to teach about Jesus, who says, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. And I'm afraid we've seen Jesus' words coming literally true in all too many cases. The self-centered life is all about quid pro quo. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. And it leads to a lack of compassion for those who can't do anything to repay us. It leads us to ignore everybody except those who can somehow help us to get ahead. Pride makes community impossible. I'll say that again, pride makes community impossible. Humility is the fuel that drives community because we serve one another in love as Jesus himself came to serve. The kind of attitude that says, well, that person made their bed, now they must lie in it, is the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. Compassion was his way. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you've been listening to your pastor carefully through the expositions of the Gospel of Luke, I'm sure you will have noticed that Luke for good reason, is called the gospel of reversal. 
Luke, more than any other gospel, is the gospel that turns the world's way of thinking on its head. It starts way off in that annunciation to Mary um, and Mary's song about, you know, the rich and the powerful are being pulled down and the lowly and exalted are being lifted up. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has lifted up, he has filled with the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. In Luke's version of the Beatitudes, chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. A great reversal. Luke chapter 18 that you're still coming to. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. And do you remember how Jesus tells the story? He actually says, and the Pharisee prayed to himself. That's what it actually says in the original language. The Pharisee prayed to himself, saying, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm better than them in all these ways. And the tax collector stood at a distance, beat his chest, which was a cultural, cultural way of expressing remorse and grief, and could only cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus turns and says, which of the two do you think was justified? And last week, I think, Luke chapter 13, verse 30, is that where you were last week, Brother Mark? Indeed, Jesus said, there are some, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let me say, that of getting ahead, Increasing your status, getting noticed, is your motive for being here in church, is your motive for doing the ministry, which means service, by the way, not top dog, it means underdog, serving the others, diakonia, in, if you're a deacon in this church, it comes from a Greek word that means a servant, I mean, I can't imagine that anybody in Windsor Road Baptist Church would be a deacon without also being a servant, but I know churches where that is the case and where being appointed as a deacon or an elder or something is a status symbol that you can use to manipulate other people to get them to do your thing. That's not the way of Jesus. The mark of the person who's escaped from self-centeredness is that they give, according to Jesus, without hoping to get anything in return. Look, the people that really need your help are the ones that can't repay you. The ones that Jesus came to save are not the healthy. He said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. So what on earth are we doing trying to earn points off the healthy the whole time? Our ministry, like Jesus, is to the sick. In Paul's farewell message to the elders of the Ephesian church, 
in Acts chapter 20. Paul quotes Jesus, a quotation that we don't have anywhere in the Gospels, but obviously this particular saying of Jesus was still floating around. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, that's what Jesus did ultimately, wasn't it? He gave himself. And it's more blessed for us to give ourselves than to receive. There was a very famous philosopher called Henry Nouwen, born in the Netherlands, but migrated to the United States, spent a lot of time there, a brilliant man, became philosophy professor at Yale University, an Ivy League school, one of the top universities in the United States of America. His walk with Christ led him to give all of that up and to take up residence as a carer in a home for disabled people, helping them get out of bed in the morning, helping them to bathe, taking them to the toilet, feeding them. A professor of philosophy doing that? I think Henry Nouwen had learned something of what Jesus was saying. It's better to give than to receive. The one who humbles themselves will be exalted. And the more you try to exalt yourself, the more in God's grace, I think, your efforts are going to be frustrated until we learn the lesson. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Look, there's only one person. In the long run, there's only one person who's well done, my good and faithful servant, is going to count for anything. Nobody else's well done is going to count in the end. Only one person, Jesus Christ. In his economy, are you looking to earn his well done? Some of my time was stolen in the first half of the service, but I'm going to steal just a little bit more of your time because the third episode in this story, still at the meal in the Pharisee's house, Jesus tells a parable. Somebody at the table, verse 15, heard what Jesus said and said to Jesus, I don't know what this guy was trying to do, earn brownie points for Jesus, express a conviction that had fallen on his heart, reflecting the Jewish hope that one day they'd all be eating at the in the banquet at the kingdom of God. Anyway, this person, for whatever reason, says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field and must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, which, by the way, was like buying five BMWs. You know, I mean, this, this guy was obviously pretty well off. Um, I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Well, maybe that's understandable. 
Um, but the servant came back and reported this to the master, and the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go quickly out into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still space. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get to taste of my banquet. Many are invited to the king's banquet. But some of those who are invited have other priorities. One guy's bought a field. Another guy's bought five yoke of oxen. Somebody else has got married. What's your excuse? Don't get so preoccupied with your own routine and your own interests that you ignore the arrival of the age of salvation and all that it means. I've heard some preachers say, as you probably have, if you die tonight and you stand before God and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? What will you say? Well, look, that's probably a question that we should think about. I mean, there's, there's a possibility that I might die tonight. I don't know. But I'll also say that the great likelihood is that you won't die tonight. I'd be very surprised if anybody um, phones Pastor Mark tomorrow morning to say that somebody from this congregation has died. It's possible, but it's unlikely. I think a much more important question is this one. If you don't die tonight, if you don't die tonight, how are you going to live your life tomorrow? For most of us, that's a much, much more pertinent question. And for those of you who hear this word from Jesus, how are you going to live your life tomorrow? Going back to the Monday routine, feathering your own nest, getting ahead, reaching your ambitions, doing your thing, trampling on other people if need be to get where you want to go? It's not the way of Jesus. I might be speaking to some people at the opposite end of the scale today. You long to be at the banquet of the king. But deep down inside, you don't know whether you really belong there. Am I good enough? If you knew what I've done, you know I don't belong there. I'm not good enough to come. The messenger goes out into the highways and byways, finds people who'd never given a thought to the possibility that they could be invited to this kingdom, 
and invites them. You see, God's people is made up of all sorts, not just the high and mighty. In fact, Jesus delights in the down and out. I haven't come to save the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. It's broken people like us that God is calling. I have another old hero. He lived from 1593 to 1633, just 40 years. His name was George Herbert, and he was an Anglican vicar, but also a poet. And I think he understood a lot about this particular parable. I'll close, if I may, by quoting this poem of his, George Herbert. It's called Love Number Three. Love Three, because George Herbert was quite consumed, I think, with the love of God. So this is the third of his poems called Love. Maybe you can put yourself into the poem. Love bade me welcome. Picture God as love, stretching his hand out to you, welcoming you, yes, you, to his banquet. That's the picture. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Which is not so much my invitation to you this morning, as it is the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to my banquet. Be my follower. It's going to turn everything you thought you knew completely upside down, but I'm telling you what, this banquet is better than anything you ever imagined. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to say once and for all goodbye to this kind of existence where we keep on trying to prove ourselves to ourselves and to each other and to relax back into our place of honor at your great feast and to devote our lives to your service. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. 
Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing, intergenerational, and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.